One of the things that boggles my mind as much as anything else is the way God uses all sorts of different human circumstances and events to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. Think with me about this for just a moment. God patiently pieces together a plethora of variables in life, and yet he accomplishes exactly what he wants to accomplish. Let me tell you how we would do it if you or I were God, perish the thought. We wouldn't patiently piece together all the variables, all the different events, all the different human circumstances. We wouldn't have that kind of patience. Instead, we would just step in and do things ourselves. We would intervene directly and not take the time to piece together all of these variables, all of the different events, all the different human circumstances. Now it is true that there are times when God miraculously intervenes to accomplish His purposes. He steps in and orchestrates directly, specifically what He wants to happen. And it is thrilling to see God work that way. But for the most part, God patiently accomplishes His will through divine providence. He fashions together all the variables. He pieces together all the different events, all the different human circumstances to carry out His divine purposes. To me, there is a sense in which that is even more astounding than God working through miracles. I mean, because God is God, he is miraculous. And just to do something miraculous for him is not difficult. But to piece together all of the human variables is what is so remarkable to consider. God's plans are not thwarted in spite of of all the variables of human and even demonic activity. Satanic activity. In fact, God uses all those variables. That is... That is mind-boggling for me to consider and think about. You've heard the statement, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That's true when it comes to geometry and geography. But the amazing thing about our God is that He accomplishes His goal of going from one point to another, yet rarely does He go in a straight line. He doesn't even use just one line. He uses all sorts of curved and zigzagged lines, and he arrives at the goal perfectly. As someone has well said, God is often behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes he is behind. That's one of the reasons why it is so fascinating to consider history. History is not merely a series of human events without any relationship to one another. History truly is his story. God is on the throne, and he is working to carry out his will and his plan for planet Earth and mark it. It will be accomplished. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. In other words, exactly at the right time, God sent His Son. So what was the right time? How did God set the stage for the coming of His Son, the Lord Jesus? 
After God spoke through the prophet Malachi, which of course is the last book in our English versions of the Bible, after God spoke through Malachi, there were 400 years of silence in the sense that God did not speak through a prophet as he had been doing, through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. But that didn't mean that God wasn't working. He was working. Remember what I said earlier. He was working through divine providence. For example, in approximately 331 B.C., the Grecian Empire came to power. It was the third world empire to rule the world. The first world empire was the Babylonian Empire. You're probably familiar with it because of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of that empire. And those of you who have read or studied Daniel are familiar with the Babylonian Empire. That was number one. That empire was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, which is recorded in Daniel's book, chapter 5. It was the Medo-Persian Empire that was conquered by Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire in about 331 B.C. Why did God allow that to happen? It wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't coincidence. Remember, God is always working behind the scenes. I appreciate so much the words of John Piper. His quote has stuck with me. This may not be exactly word for word, a paraphrase, but, but he said something to the effect on one occasion, God is always doing 100 more things than we can see. He's always doing way more than we can see. So what was God doing when the Medo-Persian Empire fell to the Grecian Empire? When Alexander and his Grecian Empire conquered the world, the Greek language was imposed on the world. In time, virtually everyone knew Koine Greek, even if it wasn't their primary language, even if it wasn't their mother tongue. Can you see why God allowed this to happen? God wanted his New Testament to be written in Koine Greek, and he wanted everyone to be able to read it. So God used the Grecian Empire to give the world the Greek language and the Greek culture to prepare the world for his son and to prepare the world for the words of Scripture that would be written about his son. But that's not all God did in those 400 years of silence, as they are often called. In approximately 146 B.C., the Grecian Empire was conquered by the Roman Empire. Why did God allow that to happen? What did the Roman Empire contribute to the world situation to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus? The Roman Empire contributed two things primarily, at least two things from the standpoint of the gospel. An extensive road system in the world. You've heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Extensive road system in the world. And two, an extensive government structure. Why did God want that in place for the coming of his son? Because just think about the great missionary work of Paul and others as they used those Roman roads and they used the conditions of peace under the Roman government to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation. You see, God was using all the human variables and all the human circumstances and all the human events to carry out His plan and His purpose for planet Earth in relation to His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the way God works. He set the stage perfectly for the coming of His Son 
and the writing of his New Testament. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. At just the right time, when the time was right, when the timing was perfect, God sent forth his Son. And of course, that's what the New Testament is about. It is all about God's precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We just finished a survey of the Hebrew Scripture, or the Old Testament as we often call it. Now we want to do a survey of the New Testament in this message. The the term New Testament is the name given to the second half of our English Bibles. Well, actually not half, it's shorter, so the second part of our English Bibles. New Testament literally means New Covenant, and the title is taken from Jesus' words in the Gospels. Look with me, by way of introduction, please, at Luke chapter 22. Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. <clears throat> this event took place on the Thursday night before the Friday Jesus was crucified. We pick up the story in verse 15 of Luke 22. Verse 15 tells us, Then he said to them, the them being a reference to his disciples, Jesus said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus was telling the disciples that he was instituting a new covenant on the basis of his blood, which would be shed the very next day. If you know the story of the Old Testament, then you know that it primarily records God's dealing with Israel on the basis of the covenant given through Moses at Mount Sinai. The New Testament, on the other hand, describes the new arrangement of God with men through Christ on the basis of the new covenant. So what is this new covenant or New Testament all about? The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. The four Gospels comprise about 46% of the entire New Testament. Let that statistic sink in. It's really remarkable when you think about it. Almost 50% of the information in the New Testament is about the historical life, ministry, death, and resurrection of our Lord. But that 46% isn't evenly divided when it comes to the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of our Lord. The four Gospels basically overlook or bypass the 30-plus years of Jesus' life before he began his public ministry. And when it comes to describing his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, the percentages are, again, highly disproportionate. Consider this, only about 50 days, 
50 days of Jesus' ministry are touched upon in the combined Gospels. 50 days out of three and a half years of ministry. By far the greatest emphasis in each of the Gospels is on the last week of our Lord's life, His death, and His resurrection. That's the message of the Gospels. God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose a victorious Savior, and ascended back to the right hand of God. Although the Gospels were not written first, it makes sense that they have been placed first in our copies of the New Testament because they form the foundation for everything else that follows. The next book of the New Testament stands in a category all by itself. It is the book of Acts. It is the only book of the New Testament which is truly history. Now, don't misunderstand that statement. Everything in the New Testament is historically accurate. But the book of Acts is the only book that has as its purpose the unfolding of historical events. The book of Acts is the history of what the ascended Christ continued to do after his ascension to the Father. Look with me at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The human author of the book of Acts was Luke, the same man who wrote the gospel of Luke. He refers to that gospel here in the first verse of the book. Verse 1. He says, the former account I made, that's referring to his gospel, the gospel of Luke, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Notice his wording in this verse. The gospel of Luke, as well as the other gospels, the gospel of Luke tells us what Jesus began to do and teach. But when Jesus ascended into heaven... He didn't stop working. He continues to work in people's lives still today. And that's what the book of Acts reveals to us. We see the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We see the growth of the church in Jerusalem. We see the spread of the gospel to Samaria. We see the spread of the gospel through the Greco-Roman world as the apostle Paul took his missionary journeys and ended up as a prisoner in Rome. So that's the story of the book of Acts. It takes the, it, it records the trek of the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to the capital of the empire in Rome as the book ends in chapter 28. Following the book of Acts, we have 21 letters beginning with Romans and ending with Jude. The apostle Paul wrote 13 of these letters. He was chosen by the ascended Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and the apostle of church truth. So it's no surprise that the Holy Spirit guided him to write, write to so many churches and to so many church leaders. Look at Romans chapter 11 to expand on this thought just for a moment. Romans 11, <clears throat> verse 13. Notice what Paul says. He says, For I speak to you Gentiles... Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. That was Paul's unique role and calling. 
He mentions this fact again over in chapter 15. Skip over just a few pages. Chapter 15, verse 15. He says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Lord called Paul to do. Paul was chosen by the ascended Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, which is why most Christians in the world today sort of gravitate toward Paul in his letters. They gravitate toward Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians and Romans because he's he's our apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. He was chosen by the ascended Christ to be our apostle and the apostle of church truth. One other passage really brings this out. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Past 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have written briefly already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations or ages, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make known or to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to, his, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once again, we see Paul had the special privilege of revealing the truth about the church, which is composed of Jew and Gentile in the same body. That's why I said that it's no surprise that the Holy Spirit guided Paul to write to so many churches and so many church leaders. He was, in a special sense, the apostle of church truth. That's what the books of Romans through Philemon are about. After Philemon comes the book of Hebrews. As the title indicates, this book is probably the most Jewish book in all the New Testament. All of the books of the New Testament have a Jewish quality about them because they were all written by Jewish men with the possible exception of Luke. Uh, If Luke was a Gentile, and we're not sure about that, he may have just gone by a Gentile name like Paul did. But if he was a Gentile, then the only books of the New Testament not written by a Jew would be the Gospel of Luke in Acts but even those may have been written by a Jew. But the book of Hebrews is exclusively Jewish, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult to interpret in places. Who hasn't labored over some of the passages in the book of Hebrews? Hebrews 6, it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift if they fall away to renew them to repentance, and there are probably 21 plausible interpretations of that passage. 
It's a tough book. It's very Jewish. The book is all about the superiority of Jesus Christ over all the things the Jews regarded most highly. The Lord Jesus is superior to the prophets. He is superior to the angels. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to the priests, both Aaron and Melchizedek. He is superior because he is God in human flesh. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 to see how the book opens past the letters of Romans through Philemon, then Hebrews chapter 1. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the message of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Don't go back. The writer of Hebrews is telling the the Hebrew Christians who are tempted to go back into Judaism. Why would you go back? Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. He's better than angels, better than Moses, better than the old covenant, better than the priests. Don't go back. Jesus is better. After the book of Hebrews comes the general epistles of James through Jude. These letters were written by James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church, the apostle Peter, the apostle John, and Jude, who was also a half-brother of Jesus, as was James. As a result, these books have more of a Jewish flavor to them than the letters of Paul, but not as much as the book of Hebrews. Since these letters were not addressed to specific churches like Corinthians to the church at Corinth, or Romans to the church at Rome, or Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. These letters were not addressed to specific churches. Therefore, they came to be known as the general epistles. Look at James chapter 1. After the book of Hebrews, James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to love the humility of James. He didn't stick in there, James, the half-brother of Jesus. He could have. But he says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. You can see that this letter was addressed to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. James wrote to the Jewish Christians who were scattered to the east in Babylon and in Mesopotamia, Peter, on the other hand, wrote to the Jewish Christians who were scattered to the west. Look at 1 Peter, next letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those re- regions were west of the land of Israel. James writes to those scattered to the east, Babylon, Babylonia, and Mesopotamia. Peter writes to those west of the land of Israel. So James and Peter, as well as John and Jude, wrote to a wide audience, and therefore their letters are sometimes referred to as general epistles. 
The final book in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. This last book describes the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ and his people in the future. It is the culmination not only of the New Testament, but of the Bible as a whole, since it completes the story begun in Genesis. It is the only book in the New Testament that concentrates almost exclusively on prophecy. Look at chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. This is the only book, not just of the New Testament, this is the only book of the Bible that opens with a promise of blessing and closes with a promise of blessing to those who will read it and those who will heed it. Only the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 22. Over near the end, near its conclusion, chapter 22, verse 7, says this, Behold, I am coming quickly. That is of the Lord Jesus, of course. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You want to be blessed? Read and keep the statements in the book of Revelation. The message of this book is that Jesus is coming back. He came the first time to seek and save. He comes the second time to judge and rule. I hope you're ready. I hope you can say with John, even so, come Lord Jesus. So that's a quick overview of the New Testament as a whole. It is full of stirring and life-changing truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. It opens with his birth and it closes with his second coming. And it centers around his death and his resurrection. Since he is the centerpiece of it all, I want to now go back, having looked at the whole thing, I want to go back and give you a comparison and a contrast of the portraits of Jesus presented in the four Gospels. I mentioned earlier that 46% of the entire New Testament, that the Gospels comprise 46% of all the New Testament. So it is, it is fitting that we spend more of our time in this survey on those four Gospels. Why are there four Gospels? How are they different? How are they alike? Those are the things I want us to consider. And as we do, I hope it will thrill your soul as it has thrilled mine to consider this composite picture of the person and work of the Savior. The term gospel means good news. The gospels record the good news of the coming of Jesus, the Savior, and Messiah. The gospels were written to awaken and strengthen faith in Christ and to answer objections and misconceptions about him. They were also designed to guide believers into a fuller understanding of his person and power. You see, as, as Christianity spread beyond Palestine, the oral testimony of the apostles was no longer adequate. Their message was multiplied and preserved through the medium of the written word. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. The Greek word synoptikos means seeing together. And it is an appropriate description of these gospels because of their common viewpoint and similar characteristics, especially in contrast to John, which is the supplemental gospel. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic gospels, John, supplemental gospel. In fact, this would be a good time to give you a basic contrast of the four gospels. As I just mentioned, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, and that's why they are called synoptic gospels. John's gospel is quite different, however. John's content differs in place, duration, communication, and style. The synoptic gospels major on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, but John majors on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. So there's the difference in place. The Synoptic Gospels restrict their coverage to about two years of Jesus' ministry, whereas John covers all three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The Synoptic Gospels are full of parables told by our Lord, but John records no parables. The Synoptic Gospels are more historical in their perspective, but John's Gospel is more theological in its perspective. That is why John has been called the supplemental gospel. From a human standpoint, you could look at it this way. John had the other three gospels when he sat down to write his. He had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's gospel was written much later, near the end of the first century. He knew what they had covered, and so his reasoning may have been, why cover what they've covered? Why say the same thing? I need to give different information, information not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Spirit of God guided him to write his gospel in that manner. There are some other differences when it comes to the four Gospels. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. Mark received his information from Peter. In fact, sometimes the Gospel of Mark is called by people the Gospel of Peter. It's almost certain Peter was behind it, the, the source, the information. So Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. Mark re received his information from Peter. Luke, we know, did his own personal research and study to write his Gospel. Of course, guided by the Spirit of God if you believe in the biblical doctrine of inspiration. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy from Joseph's side. Mark begins his gospel with the ministry of John the baptizer. Luke begins his gospel with his purpose statement. And John begins his gospel with eternity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. There are also some uniquenesses among the four Gospels. Let me mention some of them. Matthew and Luke both have a genealogy near the beginning of their Gospels. However, they are not the same. Matthew's genealogy is traced through Joseph's line back through David and Abraham. But Luke's genealogy is traced through Mary's line all the way back through David and Abraham to Adam. The genealogies of Matthew and Luke differ in the first link after David. Matthew follows the line of Solomon to Joseph, and Luke follows the line of Nathan to Mary. Matthew tells the announcement of the birth of Jesus from Joseph's point of view. 
Luke, on the other hand, tells the announcement of the birth of Jesus from Mary's point of view. And Luke gives the fullest account of the story surrounding the birth of Jesus. Some have noticed that Luke, being a doctor, caring about people from birth to grave, would have been one who had, would be more uh, inquisitive, more enamored with the events of Jesus' life beginning at his birth. His is the only gospel to tell of the birth of John the baptizer. Matthew's gospel is the only one to tell of the visit of the wise men, the, the magi. The only gospel to tell of the flight to Egypt. You remember when the, the family was told to go into Egypt? Matthew's gospel is the only one to tell of the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. Luke's gospel is the only one to tell of the praise from the shepherds. It's the only one to tell of the circumcision of Jesus. It's the only gospel to record Jesus in the temple as a baby. The only gospel that tells about Jesus' visit to Jerusalem at the age of 12. And his is the only gospel to tell about the 18 silent years in Nazareth between 12 and 30 when Jesus began his public ministry. Now, how are the Gospels similar? Well, in many ways, but I'll just mention some, some, uh, some unique factors here or features. All four Gospels tell of the ministry of John the Baptizer. It's that significant. All four Gospels say something about the baptism of Jesus. That one really struck me. I, I don't know that I would have thought of that. That, is, that event was so significant in our Lord's life, his baptism. All four Gospels say something about the baptism of Jesus. All four Gospels tell of the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, from the best of my memory, that's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000. All three of the synoptics, not John, all three of the synoptics record the temptations of Jesus. But interestingly, Matthew and Luke reverse the order of the last two temptations. John is the only Gospel to tell about the early ministry of Jesus. I mentioned this earlier, that the Synoptic Gospels, if you were to have only the Synoptic Gospels, you could maybe come up with about two years' time frame for Jesus' ministry. But with John, we know that his ministry actually lasted about three and a half years. John is the only one to tell about that early ministry of Jesus, the early year to year and a half. He tells about the call of the disciples to salvation in John 1. He tells about Jesus turning the water into wine in Cana, John 2. The first cleansing of the temple at the end of John 2. Jesus' talk with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Jesus' ministry with the Samaritans, John chapter 4. None of those events, none of those events are recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew emphasizes the 22-month Galilean ministry of our Lord. Luke emphasizes the Judean and Perean ministry of our Lord. All four Gospels emphasize the death of our Lord, and all four say that the tomb was empty, and all four say that people saw Jesus. That is, all four record eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ. That's how significant. Remember earlier I said one of the purposes of the Gospels was as a defense 
as the gospel was going out. Defending the gospel. That's called apologetics. And so they are an apologetic saying, listen, this is not just make-believe. This is not just a story. All four gospel writers make sure to record eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. How do the gospels end? Matthew ends with the Great Commission. Jesus telling the disciples and us to go preach the gospel throughout all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mark ends by telling of the ascension and the disciples going forth from there to spread the message. Luke ends with the conversation between Jesus and the two who are on the road to Emmaus, and then shortly after that, the ascension. John closes with Jesus' appearance to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and his conversation with Peter to recommission Peter after Peter's major failures. And by the way, all of this material about the Gospels, comparison, contrast, uniquenesses, all of this, there will be a test on all of it next week when you come back, all right? So you have to remember every bit of this. As we begin to wind down, I just want to give you a thumbnail sketch of each of the four Gospels. Just a a paragraph on each of the four Gospels to sort of describe each one and contrast, compare, etc. This is taken from the excellent book, Talk Through the Bible, by Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Boa. Listen as I read. Matthew, the first Gospel, presents Jesus as the Christ, that is the Messiah, Israel's Messianic King. Jesus' genealogy, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Authority and power are emphasized as his messianic credentials. In spite of his unique words and works, gradually mounting opposition culminates in his crucifixion. But the king left an empty tomb and will come again. That's Matthew. Mark, the second gospel, presents Jesus as the servant who came to give his life a ransom for many. In the beginning of his ministry, he was a servant to the multitudes. But as his departure grew near, Jesus concentrated on teaching and ministering to his disciples. A full 37, no, 37, a full 37% of this gospel, it's well over a third, a full 37% of this gospel is devoted to the events of our Lord's last and most important week. One week of his life, one week of our Lord's life, Mark gives 37% of his gospel to one week of our Lord's life. That's Mark. Luke, the third gospel, presents Jesus as the perfect Son of Man, whose mission was to seek and save that which was lost. This lucid historical portrait of Christ traces his advent, his activities, his admonitions, his affliction, and his authentication to demonstrate his perfect character and redemptive work. That's Luke. And then finally, John, the fourth gospel, presents Jesus as the eternal Son of God who offered eternal life to all who would believe in him. John uses a carefully chosen series of seven signs to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. 
Five chapters of this gospel record Jesus' parting discourse to his disciples only a few hours before his death. That is known as the Upper Room Discourse, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. After his victorious resurrection, Christ further instructed his men in a number of personal appearances, end quote. That gives you a feel for the emphasis of each of the four Gospels. Matthew, written to the Jews to prove Jesus is the Messiah. Mark, written to the Romans to demonstrate him as the perfect, tireless servant. Luke, written to the Greeks to present him as the perfect man. John, written to the whole world to present him as the Son of God who came to offer eternal life. Each gospel has its emphasis. Each gospel has its place. Each has its own unique perspective of our Lord. Each gospel has a distinctive dimension to add so that the total is greater than the sum of the parts. It's no accident, no wonder, that close to 50% of the New Testament, according to the work of the Holy Spirit and inspiration, close to 50% of the New Testament is found in the Gospels, which present to us our flawless, blessed Savior, Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know this one who is the centerpiece of the New Testament? I'm not asking if you know about him or know of him. Do you know him as your own Lord and Savior? Let's bow together as we close. Father, what a privilege. What a privilege is ours just to think through, walk through, talk through the New Testament. We think of Jesus' words there in the Gospel of Luke. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which I shed for you. Jesus shed his blood to inaugurate the new covenant. And we have this this writing, these books, which are an explanation, a presentation to us of this new covenant, which is why it is called the New Testament. So thank you for the privilege that has been ours to, to just walk our way through, thinking about each book, how it fits, its place in the New Testament, and then to be able to close by focusing on the marvelous four Gospels. What a portrait they they paint for us. And as it, has, as it has been said, the total is greater than the sum of the parts. When we look at all four of them and see this tremendous presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it intensifies our appreciation. And hopefully, it intensifies our love for our Savior. May we love him more and more. May we be enamored with him more and more. The, the more we read his word, the more we read about him and study about him, may our love for him grow and grow and grow till the day he returns to take us home. May we never, ever tire of learning about him, probing his words, his actions, looking at his ministry, learning from him, even as he said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek, gentle, 
lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What a blessed promise. What a blessed reality is ours in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.